Someday, I'm going to be able to leave my phone in my office like the olden days, which will be marvelous when we can all be together. Maybe, maybe that day will not come. Maybe we'll continue to be online. The day, hopefully, Lord willing, where COVID is over will come. But I thought my uh, phone was doing a drum roll there. I don't know how things work in your household. Sorry, my wife was nodding. Is it me? We'll just go on. I don't know how things work in your household, but in our household when our boys were young and growing up, um, Saturdays were special cereal days. And by special cereal days, I mean days where you eat the cereal that's probably not all that good for you, but is really good. Captain Crunch, um, Honeycomb, Sugar Pops, uh, Chocolate Frosted Sugar Bombs. No, I think those are from Calvin and Hobbes. But, but all those sugary cereals that... You, We hearing things? Where was I? All those sugary cereals that are not good for you, on Saturdays we would let our boys have, and then I'd go to work. <laughs> um, and Christine would deal with our three boys jacked up on sugar. I, I wasn't in, I don't think I was central in making that decision, but uh, in my defense. But anyway, Saturdays were special cereal days, and there would, there would sometimes be conflict about who would get to pick the cereal, so it went on a rotation. And I remember one particular Saturday morning we woke up, and there was no special cereal in the house. It was Brennan's turn to pick it. And so Brennan, probably around six years old, jumped in the van with me. We quickly drove down the road to our local Sobeys and went in to pick cereal. Now, uh, some of you may know that Brennan can sometimes be overwhelmed when uh, he's faced with, with choices and a myriad of options. And I remember that day walking into the cereal aisle and Brennan seeing all the cereal. It wasn't the first time, but he had the power to make a choice this morning. And he stood there and looking, and there was so many different kinds of cereal. I was going to go and count just for fun to see how many different cereals we have in the cereal aisle. Uh, there'd be less of the, the good kind, the special cereals. But I remember Calvin sitting, sorry, Brennan sitting there and getting so overwhelmed, and probably me getting a little overwhelmed and impatient, uh, telling him, just pick one. And he didn't want to get the wrong one, right? He wanted to make sure he got the right one. He wanted to get it right, and so he was so overwhelmed, I remember him collapsing to the floor and weeping before all these special cereals. He just could not pull the trigger and make a decision because he wanted to get it right, and there were so many options. Not everything in life is so complicated. Despite the myriad of choices we so often have in our 21st century Western culture, the text we're turning to this morning puts before us a choice between only two alternatives. Two ways of ordering our lives, two ways of living, and, and only two. There's no third way, there's, there's no other way. Our text will put it before us starkly. We stand before a choice between these two ways. The way of blessing or the way of destruction. Two ways, only two ways, two alternatives. No, no other way, no way for the undecided, no way for the slightly compromised, no way for the mostly good. No, two ways, the way of blessing and the way of destruction. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series from the book of Psalms. 
The book of Psalms obviously begins with Psalm 1, and that's where we will begin this morning. It's Psalm 1 that puts that very stark choice between these two ways before us. Now, a number of things I want to say in way of introducing this series uh, before we turn to the text specifically. Uh, First, Psalm 1 is not only a psalm in its own right, it serves as the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. It serves as a sort of gateway, an entrance to the book uh, as a whole. Bruce Walke and James Houston in their historical commentary write this, Psalm 1 is the main entrance to the mansion of the Psalter. Or to change the figure, it is the wicket gate that gave Pilgrim entrance to the way to the celestial city. Some of you have read the Pilgrim's Progress and you'll recognize that reference. This is an introduction. It is a gate. It is an, it is a, an entrance into the Psalter. Not only will, be, will we... Uh, now, we, we will not be exploring all, all of every psalm over this next season. Um, some of you, in case you were getting nervous, that would be... Uh, by far my longest sermon series. We'd be here for about three years. Um, There's 150 psalms. We're not going to walk through all of them, but I'm going to pick from a variety of them, some familiar, perhaps some less well-known, and we're going to explore them. We're going to unpack them. We are going to chew on them together. Now, second thing, the second thing that I want to note is this, that the, the book of Psalms is a book of prayers. It is a collection of prayers, uh, prayers of God's people, uh, the prayer book of Jesus himself. God's people for centuries have been reciting and singing and praying these psalms to God. Uh, With the possible exception of our own time, the psalms have played a central role in the life of God's gathered people praying together. And as such, there is something very unique about the Psalms. Uh, Whereas in in most scriptures, God speaks to us, there is a sense in which in the Psalms, we as God's people speak to God. Certainly God speaks to us through Psalms as well. I'm not saying that, but it's unique. God speaks to us through the other 65 books, and here he gives us this book so that we can learn how to speak to him. The Psalms are... To use Eugene Peterson's expression, the Psalms are answering speech. God speaks first, and in the Psalms, God's people respond. The Psalms give us voice. The Psalms teach us to pray. Eugene Peterson uses the metaphor of tools. He says prayers are tools. Tools not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. Peterson writes, at the center of the whole enterprise of being human, prayers are the primary technology. Prayers are tools that God uses to work his will in our bodies and souls. Prayers are tools that we use to collaborate in his work with us. He says the Psalms are the best tools. Third, let me say just a few words about the structure of the book of Psalms. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago that there are 150 psalms. What some of you may not be aware of is that those 150 psalms are in fact divided into five books. There are five books of psalms. Now that's significant for this reason. Uh, The Torah, that is God's word, Torah can be used in, in a technical sense to refer simply to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch the books of Moses, it's used often in a more general sense of all of the Old Testament, God's law. So God's spoken word in the first five books and then uh, fleshed out through history in the the historical books would be how Israel would have understood that. But 
the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Torah, God's word, is God speaking to his people. And then the Psalms respond with five books of responses, of prayers. The Psalms are intentionally arranged into this, into this order to correspond to God's voice. Not a, a thematic correspondence, but one of paradigm. God speaks in the first five books. God's people speak back in the five books of Psalms. The Psalms are answering speech. They give us voice. They teach us to respond to God. Fourth, as I just alluded, there are within the Psalms a variety of kinds of Psalms, of prayers. Prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of lament, prayers of cries for help, prayers imprecatory Psalms, prayers for God's judgment. Everything that we can feel as human beings, every experience, every emotional uh, experience that we have is captured in the Psalms. John Calvin says this. He calls the Psalms an anatomy of the human soul. From great delight to utter devastation, we experience it all within these prayers. Fifth and finally, it's vital that we understand the texture of the Psalms. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember me as a young Christian, I really did not appreciate the Psalms. I mean, it was poetry. just didn't seem to do anything for me. And so I largely ignored it for the early part of my life, but I have since grown to deeply, deeply appreciate the Psalms and, and have repented of my attitude from those earlier years. The Psalms are poetry. The Psalms are rich and they become part of my regular daily devotional life. Eugene Peterson writes this about poetry. Poetry is language used with personal intensity. It is not, as so many people suppose, decorative speech. Poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. They do it not by reporting on how life is, but by pushing, pulling us into the middle of it. Poetry grabs for the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. It is root language. Poetry doesn't so much tell us something we never knew as bring into recognition what is latent, forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed. We don't rightly come to the Psalms for information. Though there is much that we can learn about, about God, about creation, about His covenant, His commands, His salvation, we, we will encounter those things and be reminded of things, and certainly we can learn those things, but, but we do not come to the Psalms primarily or fun, fundamentally for more information. We come to the Psalms for a deeper connection with the living God. Living in the information age as we do, the temptation is great that we would simply uh, come to anything. And, and we do it to Scripture. We, we come to Scripture and we, we mine it for information. We mine it for information and forget that it is ultimately about relationship. Earlier in my life, one season I was serving as a youth pastor in another province and experienced some challenges in that church and felt a deep desire to go for more education. There were some, some things going on that I disagreed with, and I thought, I, I, I just I, I believe that's wrong, but I don't know how to articulate it and express it and, and 
argue with these people and convince them that they're wrong and that there's a, another way. And so I ended up, longer story, I ended up going on to graduate studies and, and uh, didn't end up getting to go to the school that I wanted to. The Canadian dollar plummeted in, in that uh, year, 1998. So the money we'd saved up suddenly wasn't enough. I didn't get a visa. And so very reluctantly, I went to a different school. And I remember showing up there, and everyone was excited. Oh, isn't it great to be here? Isn't it awesome? Oh. And I was like, shut up. There by default, pretty angry. And I went to my very first lecture. And Bruce Walke, who I quoted, this godly old man stood up in front of us. And the first words that he said, I hope you know that you come to seminary not to load up on theological ammunition, but to get to know Jesus better. We need to hear that when it comes to coming to God's Word, and we need to hear that as we come to the book of Psalms. We don't come to them to get information, to mine it for stuff that we don't know or haven't heard before. We come to it to get to know the living God, to grow in intimacy with Christ. With that groundwork laid, I invite you to open your Bibles. And I really want to challenge you to bring your Bibles. And I want to even be so bold as to suggest bring a physical Bible rather than your phone or your device. I want to encourage you to do that. I think there's value in that. So that as we work through this, you're looking at it and you can make notes or highlight. I want to read Psalm 1 for us this morning. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I want to, in the time we have remaining this morning, just ask and answer five short questions. What are the conditions in which we find ourselves? Second, what are the ways that stand open before us? Third, uh, what are we told about each of these ways? Fourth, what is the end of each of these ways? And fifth, what response is Jesus calling you to this morning? So we begin with question one. What are the conditions in which we find ourselves? Uh, the word conditions we use to speak of such things is climate, terrain, culture. Uh, conditions speaks to our circumstances, our setting, our our. Uh, our set of circumstances. I've already noted for you this important fact that the Psalms are answering speech, that, that God speaks first and God's people through the Psalms respond. And, and therein lies the critical fact that we need to recognize when it comes to this question of our conditions. God is foundational. We live in the presence of Almighty God. God speaks first. God reveals himself to us as humanity. 
Eugene Peterson writes this, the Psalms come from a people who hear God speak to them and realize that it is the most important word they will ever hear spoken. They decide to respond. They answer. The word they hear from God takes precedence over every human word. The conditions in which we find ourselves is that we, as finite, created human beings, live in the presence of the living God who has spoken first, who has revealed himself. Those are the conditions in which we live. God is at the center. It is not about you. It is not about me. We are not at the center. God is. We live before him. And we must reckon with that reality. The question is, what will we do with that? What will we do with God? How will we live before this God before whom we find ourselves? That is a critical question and a critical reality for us to recognize. Second question, what are the ways that stand open before us? The Psalms begin with the word blessed, blessed. It begins describing the one who is blessed, the the way of the one who is blessed. But before we go any further, we need to stop and pause in and unpack. What, What does it mean? What does blessed mean? Now, it's often translated happy, and happy is accurate to a, to a point, but it, it misses something important. In English, at least, happy is connected to happenings. It's connected to my circumstances. And, and this word goes beyond that. It's, it, it means more. Uh, it, it speaks of being fortunate, of being privileged. Jesus uses the same concept in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. And so we realize that it must mean a bit more than simply happy. Fortunate, privileged. Karl Barth, in speaking about this word, this idea from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, translates it this way. He, he says it, 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 it's like God's declaration, you lucky bums. It, it, the, the, to be blessed is to be, to be from God's perspective, you, you lucky bums. You're so fortunate. You're so privileged. In other words, this way, the way of the one who is blessed is, is, is the good life. This is, this is life that is desired by every one of us. This is life that is desired by every person around us. People want to live a blessed life. They want to be fortunate. They want to be privileged. They, they want to be considered lucky. They, they want the good life. We want the good life. But the reality is in our world, in our culture, we pursue this in a whole myriad of different ways. People around us uh, pursue it in money, thinking that money, that will bless me, that will make me fortunate, that will, that will give me the good life. Or power, I want power over people, or fame, or sexual pleasure, or, or, or you name it. Recreation, entertainment. We, we turn in our world, we turn to all manner of things to try and experience to find this blessed life, this fortunate life, the good life. But here, the beginning of the Psalter, it stands here before us. It, 
psalmist is about to describe for us the, the way that is blessed. It is one of the two ways that stands open before us, is the blessed way, and I'll say more about it shortly. The other way is the way of the wicked, it's described. It's the way that leads to destruction. Verse 6, we see that. So this gateway we walk through and we look before us and we see two ways. We see starkly this choice, the way that is blessed and the way of destruction. Only two choices. Those stand before us. The third question was, what are we told about each of these ways? Now to be sure, the, psalm, the psalms as a whole in this psalm does not say all that could be said in answer to this question. Remember, there are 65 other books in the Bible that, where God speaks to us, revealing himself, calling us to follow him, explaining to us what it means to be his disciple, to live in relationship with him. And here in the Psalms, we respond. So we can find help in answering this question throughout Scripture, but this Psalm, though it doesn't say everything that can be said, it does say some important things in answering this question. The way of blessing is found by the one, the text says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We read that. That's positively. Now, it begins by saying, blessed is the one who does not. And we're going to come to those does nots in a moment. But positively, blessed is the one who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The way of blessing... The, the good life, if you will, is integrally connected to the law of the Lord, delighting in it, meditating on it. And I'll say more about what that is in a moment, but, but, and we'll come back to the things that one does not do. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it. Negatively, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of of mockers. Still describing the same way, here negatively. Here are things that the one who is blessed does not do, does not engage in. And I hope you can see there's a progression here. First, a spiraling ever into, into darkness. First, you, you walk with the wicked. Uh, next, next, you stand in the way of sinners. You, you stop walking. And third, you finally take a seat in the company of mockers. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. This is the same kind of progression that we see in the book of James, where James writes this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The way of destruction is the way shaped by, influenced by, those who are described as wicked, by sinners, by mockers. First, we walk with sinners. We stand. Sorry, we walk with the wicked. We stand with sinners. And then we take a seat with mockers. Those are things that the one who is blessed does not do. And back to the way of blessing positively. The way of blessing. The one who is blessed rather delights in the law of the Lord. It meditates on it day and night. In other words, the one who is blessed, the way of blessing is the way of being shaped by, formed by, influenced by the law of the Lord. 
that we would delight in what God says, that we would focus our attention on what God says. The law here speaks of of God's law, all that God says in self-revelation and in His commandments, His instructions for humanity. It's interesting that the noun Torah comes from the verb uh, which means to throw something that hits its mark. Picture a javelin. God's words are a javelin and we are the target. God's words are are not something we just pull off a library shelf when we want some information. No, Torah is God's words hurled at us. They pierce us. They penetrate us. They get inside us and transform us. They shape us and influence. They they form us as women and as men. This penetration happens as we delight in His words. And that requires that we trust Him. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were led astray when they were led into doubting God's goodness. Did God really say? God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become like God. God God is keeping something good from you, guys. God's not as good as you think. You want the good life? Go over here. That was the temptation in the garden. That is a temptation that we face daily to doubt God's goodness, to doubt the goodness and the joy of His law. But see, God created us as women and men in His image to reflect His likeness. What we need to grasp, what we need to hold on to is this truth, that when we disobey God's law, when we choose sin... One, we are doubting God's goodness. We're not believing Him. We're thinking, no, this is the way to the good life. This is the happiness that I want. And in doing so, we are in fact becoming less human. Sin dehumanizes us. It's obedience to God's law that enables us to become more and more who we were created to be. Women and men who look like Him. Who are conformed in His image. And as we become who we are made to be, we experience greater measure of joy and delight in Him. We are to delight in the law of the Lord and we are to meditate on it day and night. Eugene Peterson points out that meditate is, is a bodily action. It's, it's a murmuring over, a mumbling here. It's, it, there's something physical, getting a feel for the words and their meaning. In fact, Isaiah in Isaiah 31 uses this same Hebrew word for meditate for the sound that a lion makes over its prey. This this anticipation of what is about to nourish him. That's meditating. They purr, growl in pleasurable anticipation over what will feed them. What a great and powerful picture of what it looks like to delight in the law of God, to delight in the Word of God, to meditate on it. Not not just read it occasionally, not not just uh, think about it sometimes, not just some intellectual process, but to, to bodily just like take it in. Eugene Peterson writes this, it's a physical process, hearing and rehearsing these words as we sound them again, letting the sounds sink into our muscles and bones. He writes, uh, meditation is mastication, that is chewing. 
We chew on God's word. We, we take it in like a lion over its prey. We, we meditate and delight in it because we know it's good because we trust that God is good. Fourth, what is the end of each of these ways? The psalmist employs two images. The first is the image of a tree, alive and flourishing, bearing fruit, thriving. And the second is the image of chaff, blown away, disappearing in the wind. The the way of blessing ends with a life that is like this tree, wonderfully alive, wonderfully fruitful, planted by streams of water. It's interesting to note that the Psalms were collected into their current form. Well, God's people were in exile in Babylon, a land that was largely flat and featureless, one river flowing through the land. The Babylonians cut a network of irrigation canals across the land, and so wherever those canals went, the fertile land and just spread, followed those. And so that's the imagery here for the Israelites as they hear this, as they recite this, as they, they pray this back to God. A tree planted by an irrigation stream, flourishing in the midst of a dry and parched land. A tree marvelously alive and fruitful, lush. A life nurtured by God, nurtured by the word of God. And in contrast, the way of destruction ends with, well, destruction. The wicked are like chaff that blows away. In in the harvesting process, you would take, the, the chaff is the heavy husk around the grain and you would thresh it and then you would throw it up in the air and the breeze would blow away the, the, the husk, the chaff, and the grain would fall back into your net or onto the floor. Chaff is useless. Chaff is the leftovers. It's the, the part that is disposed of. It's dead, unneeded, blown away. Those are the images of the end for these two ways. The way of blessing ends with this fertile, futile, uh, fruit, fruitful, flourishing life of a tree. The way of destruction is one of, of fading away, eternal lostness, uselessness, death. Leads us to our fifth and final question. What response is Jesus calling you to this morning? This text naturally leads us to some introspection, to ask ourselves some challenging questions. What's shaping your life? What's influencing your life? What's forming you? In Greek mythology, it was believed that the face of the god Medusa was so hideous that it would turn the hearts of any who looked into her face to stone. Bruce Walkie and James Houston write this, many Christians have medusas in their living rooms, hardening their hearts to sex and violence. They, of course, are speaking of television. We could update that. Many Christians have medusas in their pockets, in their purses. What's shaping you? We, we live in a culture where the influence of media, the influence of social media, the influence of Google is so prevalent 
Do we even recognize it? You know, if you ask a fish, how's the water? There's a cartoon. One fish says, what's water? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just where we are. What's shaping your life? What, what's shaping, forming your behaviors? What's shaping your dreams, your delights? What is it that is most powerfully influencing you, transforming you? As Christians have historically been called people of the book. But, but let me ask these hard questions. Do you delight in this book? Do you delight in it? Do you meditate on the words of God day and night? Are you and I seeking God diligently? Do, do we open our Bibles and, and growl with pleasurable delight over what we are about to hear from the living God before whom we live? As we enter into the Psalter, as we enter through this gate of Psalm 1, This choice is put starkly before us. There are two ways. Two ways that are radically different. Two ways that lead to radically different ends. And what distinguishes these one way from the other is what we do with God, what we do with God's word. Do we live with God at the center? Do we invite God to speak into our lives, to shape us, to form us? Do we delight ourselves in his word? I don't know about you, but I find these words quite convicting. I can drop three hours watching hockey like nobody's business. Do I delight in God's word? Do I meditate on God's word day and night? Do you? Now there is a danger we face at this point of feeling like getting on this way of blessing, staying on the way of blessing is something that I achieve by, by my performance, right? By, by making sure I read the Bible and I can check that box off, but it's not like that. See, the Torah, God's law, God himself speaks clearly over and over and over. He's unequivocal that not one of us begins on the way of blessing. Not one of us is righteous by our own deeds, by our own efforts. Not one of us gets into this way or stays on this way by what we do. We're told that over and over and over again in the pages of the Bible. But we're also told of one who is righteous. One whose life is a perfect reflection of God's law. And one who out of love for you and out of love for me came and experienced destruction on the cross so that through faith in him we might be washed, we might be cleansed, we might be brought into the way of blessing that we might become those lucky bums that we might be his beloved, redeemed children. It's through Christ. It's through Christ alone that we find our way into this way of blessing. It is through the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone that we enter into this way of blessing. And then out of, uh, uh, the question becomes, well, how do we respond then? 
as we see Christ again dying for us, as we recognize that it's through Christ's love and Christ's grace, his mercy, that we are invited into, that we are brought into from the way of destruction and the way of blessing, how do we respond then? And this is where we need to do be on our knees, brothers and sisters. As we see this, we, we need to again Daily, moment by moment, maybe this is what, what the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart. We need to surrender again. We need to surrender fully. We need to humbly repent before Him, before Christ. We need to confidently trust Him. We need to, to throw away the lies that we have believed about what will fulfill us, about what the good life is. We need to follow him in joyful obedience. Here's what we need to do. We need to look ruthlessly at our lives and look at all that is incongruent with the way of blessing. What is it in my life that does not fit with the life of one who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night? And we need to turn from those things, repent, surrender anew, and joyfully, trustingly obey Christ. We need to do that daily. We don't get onto the way. We don't remain on the way by our own efforts. We respond to the one who has redeemed us, to the one who is the very word of God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. If you are not yet a believer, I want to speak to you for a moment. Though this might be terribly offensive to you, Scripture is clear. If you have not surrendered to Christ, if you've not repented and believed, you are on the way of destruction. It matters not how happy you think your life is or what you think might satisfy you. It will not. You live just like everyone else before the living God. And there are only two ways. It's not a third way. It's not a way for those who are mostly good or undecided. There's the way of blessing and the way of destruction, and the way of blessing is entered into through faith in Jesus, the only one who is truly righteous. And so I implore you this morning, come to Jesus. Come to the one who gave himself for you. Come to the one who wants to bless you with a life that is fruitful, a life that will be filled with ultimate joy. And please, no mistakes here. A Christian life is not a life where we come to Jesus and then we get all those other things, money, fame, whatever we think will give us happiness. No, Jesus is not a vending machine. We can come to Christ and suffer death. We can come to Christ and suffer great loss. We can come to Christ and experience great pain. But we are promised that that will not last forever, that in the end, we will experience joy and delight in the very presence of the living God who loves us and made us to know him and to be with him. And so I implore you, if you are not yet in Christ, to surrender to him today. Let me conclude this way. Jesus, Jesus did not come to be a part of your life. Jesus did not come to be a part of my life. Jesus came to be everything to be the center. He's not an appendage. He's not something we just add on and we go live our lives. No, to come to Christ means to die to self, to surrender all, to humbly bow before him, to trust that he is good, and to delight ourselves in him as our redeemer, as our creator, in full surrender, in humble repentance, in confident trust and joyful obedience to the word, to Jesus. 
and by His Spirit in us to seek to turn away from the influence of the world, the influence of those around us who do not know Him, who remain in rebellion against Him, that we would not be women and men who would walk in, in that way, in the way of the wicked, that we would not stand with sinners, that we would not sit with mockers, but instead we would come to Christ daily, moment by moment, and delight in Him, recognizing all that He's done for us, all that He has done for us on the cross, that we would invite Him to shape us, We'd invite him to influence us, that we'd invite him to transform us for his glory. Amen.